You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. As we have now almost reached a century of episodes, I wanted to thank everyone for being on the journey with us. I am honestly forever amazed how much positive feedback we get, and I personally love doing the show every week. It is a genuine honour to interview the people I do and to receive all the feedback that I do from you guys, the Own the Build listeners as well. Thank you for all your feedback, and if you could just take 30 seconds to pick up your phone and hit the write a review or leave a rating button on Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever you blooming well listen to. Please do that. I'll be forever grateful. And after 99 episodes, I think this is the least I deserve. So I will give you a few seconds now just to think about that. Anyway, on to the show. I've had the great pleasure, as I've said, of interviewing so many fascinating individuals from across the breadth of construction. You guys know I'm a simple QS. But in the 100 or so episodes that we've done to date... I wanted to kind of reflect and look back. So today, I'm going to share with you the best moments as I see it so far, or perhaps better, the moments where personally I think I extracted the most information. So enjoy the rest of the show. Here are my five favourite moments from Own the Build and our 99 episodes today. We talk about a a pack of information. If we're talking about the perfect pack, I think, first of all, it'd be great if if all of the information was in a nice, neat, uh, zipped folder labeled up in in, in (laughs) uh, sections and all of that. I mean, I'm probably clutching at straws a little bit there, but uh, (laughs) within that imaginary zip folder of, uh, of documents, I would think there's probably a, there's probably several sort of headline things that you would would love to see uh, provided to you from a client. If we're if we're talking about a a contractor has come to you with um, with a delay that they've experienced on site and they've you know they've put this to their employer and their employers um, had a look at it. The contract administrators had a look at it and uh, and it's been knocked back for for one reason or another. What would we want to see now? It would vary. A, depending on the type of delay but very very broadly first of all the first the first thing that you want to see there is uh the full contract now you would you usually think well that's straightforward you know you're gonna you're gonna that's just a a case of just sending that over but you know it's particularly on smaller projects as well and um everybody's very very good at getting the work you know construction industry are brilliant at sort of uh networking getting those jobs but uh, you you know you can from time to time find that certain things just aren't pieced together properly within the contract and um, there can be problems you know in terms of what is exactly being incorporated into this contract what are we required to do which can have a knock-on effect on uh, on being able to claim delay particularly if you know you think you're not required to do something but actually when you look at the contract that there is an obligation to do something that you've uh, that you're saying it could, could potentially be a relevant event. So you'd want to see a, a full completed contract executed there. Absolutely. Then I think you would want, uh, and, th- and this is where it comes into specifically with delay claims, uh, a program. 
oh, I say not necessarily a program, maybe a number of programs. Um, the contract program you'd need, you right? Would, exactly. You want you want to well, you want what we what we always call or what you would say is a baseline program. Sort of, this is what the agreed sort of um, steps that that should have been taken. And if everything went perfectly and there was no problems on site, which I'm yet to encounter one of those situations, that's how it would be would be done. That's how it would be completed. That's what the starting point. How do we you know how do we measure delay? You look at a baseline program. Ideally, that baseline program would then be updated throughout the course of the project regularly. So as works are ongoing and as uh, particular activities are being completed, uh, we're tracking when those activities are actually being uh, are actually taking place. And um, so that that really forms what what you would then call the as built program, the, the program that demonstrates how things have actually turned out. And you only get that if if you do properly update that as as you uh, as you go through the job you know that's probably the one thing that you see more than not is that the um, the program hasn't been updated you know again it's an administrative task that's a pain for uh, for for any contractors or subcontractors or anybody to to really do to properly manage that you know and the the, the real focus on the it ground, requires discipline exactly and the real focus on the ground is always let, let's just get the job done that's the you know that's everybody's number one sort of aim on this on these projects and it only really comes into play when something goes wrong where you want to actually look at uh, how things have developed so it does you know it's understandably gets forgotten and then you would want uh, probably to see a an impacted program which is demonstrating how the the delayed event that you're complaining about has impacts the remaining work still left to complete so you know if we are looking at an instance where it's a uh, an extension of time you can see uh, how the completion date is being pushed back and how one activity is affecting the next so um so so programs are really really key and important in uh, in in delay claims and that that's kind of in an ideal world what you what you want to see there i think it then comes on to the notices Crikey, guys, there's more. These lawyers, they Absolutely. want everything. <laughs> you asked me for my perfect uh, pack of <laughs> No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your notices. There's, a, there's obviously a requirement within most standard construction contracts. You know, JCT and NEC contracts both provide for early notification of uh, of any event that you consider to be a delay event. So you'd like to see... So just going back to my example, sorry to jump over there, because notices... They can come in many different guises, can't they? I'm going to take us back to my project where it's the 25th of December. I'm working on Christmas Day and I'm walking past the site and I'm thinking I'm going to be starting the uh, curtain wall on the 1st of January, but there is no concrete slab. What should I do? What does a notice look like? In terms of what, what a notice looks like, there's not necessarily a um, you know prescribed format as to what back of a notice back needs it. to look like. <laughs> In essence, I mean, I've, I've not seen that yet, but provided, I think it's more of what should a notice contain. And that is really, you know, because uh, I mean, a lot of people kind of think sometimes we haven't given notice, you know, we, we did it to retrospectively. And then you look through the email correspondence and you think, well, hang on a minute, you know, your, your emails and when you're, you're complaining you're, about it there yeah, and, the, the complaint yeah. you, you're ticking all the boxes you're saying all of the right things and the contract only requires you to do that so this could in theory be uh, be your notice i mean but what you like to see and what what we tend to work with is 
putting together sort of prescribed forms of notices that creates a bit of a discipline internally to uh, to ensure that look if we ever which think, include uh which exactly which can include uh you want to give notification if, if we're looking at uh, talking about a delay event that's um uh, that you think is causing an extension of time the jct requires it to be written and given a early notification as soon as you become reasonably aware that the completion date is going to be pushed back so in my example would i just say to them i'm a, I'm a week in advance takes a week or two to pour a slab would i just walk past the site and then go right i'm gonna go home go to the office write an email saying hello it looks like uh, the concrete slab is not going to be ready for a start date on the 1st of January as per our program. We therefore think there may be a delay. We'll keep you updated depending on when you hand it over to us. Well, exactly. You want, you want, to, get, you want to be getting as much information in there as possible. So J, JCTs, we're going back to that. They require, if you also think that is going to cause you cost and disruption or, uh, or loss and expense, You've, there's also a requirement within the JCT to give early notification of what you believe that cost would be. So what you want to be saying is that the earliest opportunity, and I always say, look, it's not a case of there being a singular notice of that's the key notice that kind of triggers the ability to uh, to claim loss and expense and claim an extension of time. You want to be all over it, really. You want to be notifying them as quickly as possible, obviously, that this is an event that's going to be causing us delay. Uh, this is going to cost us money. It might even be the case you don't know fully how much money that's going to be, but as soon yeah. as you then become... It's going to be difficult. Exactly. Yeah. As soon as you become aware, you want to be telling them again. If you think that the delays push back even further, you want to be telling them again. And it's the, the more that you're, you're doing that and the more information you're giving to the employer, the, the better protected you're going to be moving forward in terms of, look, we've done all we can here to kind of push this we were always telling exactly that that slab was going to cause a delay i wanted to talk to you today i wanted to lean into your expertise with regards to construction contracts and people are starting to dust off their construction contracts and go hunting for the one clause that that allows them to yeah absolutely and the thing is you're right and the, the, the problem we've got is for we've had such a stable price um, range for such a number of years, you know, decades effectively, that the mechanisms that are available or have traditionally been available in the standard form contracts like the NEC contract, um, I think it's X4, or like the fluctuations provisions in JCT were routinely deleted they were they people didn't believe them to be appropriate so they didn't have them in whereas now they're absolutely relevant but they're not in their contracts so we've kind of got a few problems we've got people with existing contracts to deal with and people who are about to enter into a contract to deal with so let's deal with the existing contracts first the problem for a lot of the existing contracts is we've gone for fixed price fixed price was a mechanism by which clients could get cost certainty at the beginning with a few changes, admittedly, but they at least knew what their budget was, could get funding for it, that kind of stuff. That's been really well preferred in the market. The problem with a fixed price contract is it's it's exactly that. It's fixed. If you provide the same goods, materials and services that you already asked to do, that's the price you're going to get paid. So one of the mechanisms that people can use is try and use a change mechanism and just say to their clients, you know, this is what's happened. This is what we may need to change can we have a discussion about it? They might not have a right to get the client to kind of change this, 
but they might actually have the ability to get the client to change it. A lot of the contracts that we have, the existing contracts, don't have the right for the contractor even to propose changes. Because, um, jump in there, so th- there's a difference between variation and fluctuation, right? Like a significant difference between the two. So I'm going to try to exemplify something that I got told about by one of my clients recently. So the discussion for that client was they were, they were due to commence um, the works on in December 2021. Things got sh- the main contractor agreed their price, fixed price, as you say, lump sum. Didn't start on the si- on December 2021. Six months later, final planning was achieved. June 2022, the world of supply chain and inflation had completely changed between those six months. So there's a difference between fluctuation and variation because some people say to me, "Oh, I've got a f- fixed price lump sum, therefore I can't have any variations." You can have a variations if elements change right if i say i don't want it to be brick i want it to be block work or bad yeah. example but you, you yeah but but one of the ways of dealing that would be to say the reason I, I you know we we need to make a change because if i stick with the specification that we agreed then that price material has gone up 60 percent. i can't afford to finish this project on that basis if we change the specification of that or we change to a slightly different material or we can agree that you know, circumstances have changed. So I, you know, it's not my fault the price has gone up. Then we could continue with this project, but we're struggling. And I think a lot of it is about open, honest communication because most of the clients know this stuff is happening. They, however, still have to have the conversation with whoever's funding their project. So it could be that they've got bucket loads of cash sitting around just waiting to be spent, but probably not. Unlikely. So we need to manage (laughs) the kind of the chain of where this money is coming from and how we're going to deal with it. So you're right that generally speaking, a change mechanism is dealing with changes in scope, methodology, you know, working hours, restrictions. That kind of doesn't really fit the bill. But some contracts, uh, if they're simple enough and they're generic enough, will allow you to propose changes for other reasons, including events beyond the control of the parties. So if you've got events beyond the control of the parties, which is, say, the Russian war and the um, impact that's having on a lot of materials or the continued effects of the pandemics, there's no reason why you can't say, I know it doesn't strictly fit within this mechanism, but can we have a discussion on this mechanism? Because this is the way that we're actually going to continue with the project. And I think that gets us away from kind of strictly looking at the kind of I's and the T's and all this kind of stuff in a contract and kind of looking at the precise wording and go, actually, the purpose of a change mechanism is to take into account things that we didn't know were going to happen at the beginning of the project. This is the right mechanism, even if it doesn't strictly say we can do it for these reasons. And and that's what I really like about your proposed solution there is typically, or not typically, but you know, there's, a, there's this big 20% problem sat on our desk, right? And the typical way is to say, right, I'm going to find something that proves that that isn't my problem and just push, try and push it back over to the developer and the developer will say, vice versa, not my problem, it's your problem. And you're getting absolutely nowhere. What you're actually advocating for there, which is really interesting, I hadn't even thought about that, is to say we can vary the contract to make it work for both of us because on current grounds it doesn't work for either of us or it's going to work very badly for one of us and not the other one. So how can we go about that? Is that something... Flipping it the other way around then, fluctuation provision, or how would you go about saying this is completely not my problem? So a fluctuation provision basically says that if 
specific types of materials. Sometimes it's labor, sometimes it's just materials and goods. Goes beyond a particular price range or beyond the base price, that's normally defined at the contract, or whatever's in the pricing documents, then you can apply to have an increase in those materials and those um, that labor. And that's how it works. So it basically gives you a second bite to come back and go, wow, you know, we can absorb 5% maybe, but we can't absorb 60%. We know some supplies in the UK construction sector have gone up 60% in six months. Nobody, nobody can absorb that. So it's kind of like moving away from the toddlers in the playground, my side of the contract, your side of the contract, my side of the contract, which is which is kind of maybe, should we say, the traditional way we've done things in UK construction, to taking a slightly more grown-up approach, which says the purpose of this project is to achieve X. Is there a way that we can achieve that by taking a slightly different route where we both get to the end reasonably happy? I'm not going to say anyone's going to make a lot of money, but at least not absolutely insolvent and losing money hand over fist. It works both ways, doesn't it? So if, you, if you're if you the main contractor and you, and you say, materials have gone up 20%, that's my margin gone, sorry, can't do it, your problem. Developer probably says, well, construction's gone up 10% for me now, scheme is not viable, nobody wins, right? Absolutely nobody wins. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering, and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming, and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, If you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So then let's take it back to your task force that you mentioned earlier. You're in this rabbit hole from that initial report that you did. You've started focusing on things and now you are a part of a task force. I actually think you're the chair of that task force. Can you tell us more about that and what your ambitions are for where it can take us? Yeah, so I started asking people if they recognised this problem as well or if it was just me. And of course, lots of people recognise it because they know that their companies are making mistakes that they shouldn't be. Um, even where they, you know, known mistakes, things that they all know about, still somebody will do it. Um, and that's costing them money and it's a safety issue and it's a productivity issue. So they all know it. And they're all interested in doing something about it together because doing it um, individually would be really, there'd be duplication of efforts and it would be ineffective. You wouldn't be able to share or collaborate. You can imagine people having their own BIM systems. So we formed this task force and we did some survey work to begin with just to confirm what we thought. And the kind of the shock that came out in the survey work was a third of practitioners freely admit they don't have access to the knowledge they need to do their job. 
And that's, that's pretty alarming. What was I saying earlier about being mind, your mind boggles about construction? That is a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah. Gregor, what, what did I mean specifically when someone says in, in that context, in that environment, they don't have access to the knowledge they need to do their job? What do they actually mean by knowledge to do in, in that context? I, um, well, I guess I can give you, if I give you a practical example. So if you take something like the building regulations, and if we talk about approved document B, so that the file one that's been all over everything since Grenfell and the Hangout Review, approved document B, freely available, everybody can access it. It's pretty long, it's about 250 pages, the two documents, I think. But everybody can access it. But it refers to 100 other documents that you need to have access to, to be able to fully implement approved document B. And I think the, the approved documents altogether refer to about 850 other documents. And a lot of those you've got to pay for. So, so just one of those, so BS9999, which is the fire one, that's 400 pages long and it costs 400 pounds. So if you multiply that across everything, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of pages of stuff and probably 20, 30,000 pounds worth of knowledge scattered in all, all over the internet. The idea that SMEs can actually access all of this stuff and pay for it and have the time to read it and apply it and check it. I mean, they just don't. So even with something as fundamental as the approved documents, it's a big ask to think that everybody knows all of that stuff. I mean, they just couldn't. Maybe if you're Arab, you know, you can. You can have a specialist in everything, but an SME can't do that. Why do you have to buy that stuff? Well, that is a good question. It doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> you know, there's a debate to be had about that. I mean, if there are safety-critical things that we think people should comply with, why are they being charged to access it? And in fact, there's a guy in America who um, says um, if the law isn't public, it isn't law. And what he's doing is he's taking building codes in America, which you have to pay for, and he's publishing them online for free. And then saying to the publishers, go ahead and see me. So he's he is getting sued. Really? That's yeah, great. and so far he's winning his cases because the courts are agreeing. That he's, that he's in the right, effectively. But is that... <laughs> it's so frustrating, this is, because like you say, Liam, why on earth is that commercialised? Why can't you get hold of that if it's part of the fire regulations and you have disasters like Grenville happening? But how is this task force dealing with that or trying to deal with that, Gregor, to improve things? Well, so we've created a route map that takes us from where we are, which is dumb digital versions of paper documents, basically, through to knowledge that is smarter. And smart knowledge should be standardised so you can access it with a single tool and um, you can query it with a single tool and filter it and manage it with a single tool. You should be able to access it easily, maybe with a single login. Um, and maybe, you know, the problem that we just talked about, maybe there should be project subscriptions. So if I'm running a project, instead of paying for a subscription to British Standards Institute for me, I pay for it for the project. So I know everybody on that project has got access to everything that they need. And ultimately, 
we want to be able to start pushing knowledge to people. So if you're a building services engineer working on the design of something or other for a hospital, we should know that at this stage of this project, these are the sorts of things you need to know, and we should be able to push them to them. If somebody's working on designing some steelwork in a certain situation, we should be able to say to them, here are some known errors with the work that you're working on. Don't do it. So the first thing the task group has done is create a, a standard for knowledge, which is a standard way of describing construction knowledge that says this is what it is, this is what it's about, this is when it might be useful. And if everybody in the industry applied that, sort of like Uniclass for knowledge, if everybody in the industry just applied that, then our knowledge would immediately become interoperable and we'd be able to begin to integrate it with other things. So you might be able to integrate it with your BIM model, for example. So you click on a piece of steel and all the standards you need to know about that piece of steel pop up or all the research, all the all the news, all the innovations pop up. Makes total sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not technically difficult to do. It's just whether the industry exactly. has the will to actually do it. Yeah, and, and are you feeling uh, positive about it? I was going to say, other industries are doing similar things and using tools like Zapier. Yeah. Where they've got 30 different pieces of software and pulling them all together. Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, the legal profession, for example, so if lawyers use the long, wrong bit of legislation or they refer to some out-of-date case law or something, it would be an absolute catastrophe for them. So they have to be completely certain that they're using the right knowledge or they're, they're going to end up in terrible trouble. So they have things like LexisNexis, which is a piece of software that helps them make sure they're up to date and they're using the right things at the right time. And when you talk to people that develop that sort of software for legal professionals, and you, they say, well, there's nothing in the construction industry. They say, no, nothing, nothing at all. There's not one single thing. No. And they cannot believe they're totally aghast. Yeah. In high-rise, we're building all these incredibly structurally amazing buildings and like so complex the architecture is going on fast forward isn't it and then you think yeah how do we not have that they're the two primary challenges basically is it a variation or not and then if it is how did you arrive at this fantastical number paul that you just seem to pluck out of the air for this variation. So there are rules for valuing variations. Could you talk us through those and kind of give us your advice around that? Yeah, well, I think as a, as a general rule, it's um, any variation should, should really be instructed as a, uh, as a, as a general. And the, the contracts, you know, your, your JCTs and your, um, uh, your NECs, they provide a provision for, you know, variations are in the very essence should be instructed just because they're, if, if they're not, if they're oral uh, instructions or if they're something that by conduct is asked them to do, that makes things a little bit uh, trickier. But once once a variation has been instructed, there's various mechanisms within the contract that will then determine how that's going to be uh, going to be valued. And I mean, the two obvious ones, again, are JCT and NEC contracts, and they both have slightly different regimes. If we sort of hone in on the JCT, which tends to be the most used, there's, the, there's a mechanism within there for variation quotations to be given and the employer to, uh, or the contract administrator or the employee's agent to ask for a variation quotation. And there's a mechanism then for a variation to be agreed under that mechanism. And then they can decide whether or not they formally instruct it. There's also, as a general rule, 
any variation can be agreed between the parties in whatever format they want, price, exactly what the scope of works is. And, and that would, even if not necessarily in writing, you know, uh, that, that constitutes the agreement and how, how the variation is going to be valued. But the problem tends to be, you know, those, those seem to be much more straightforward issues. You know, you've, you've agreed a price, you do the works, well, what's the price for the works? It's what you agreed. It's uh, a lot more straightforward. That, tends not to happen really and it's uh, unusual yeah, I was for... gonna say, that's not my experience exactly because of the vast number you know practically if you try to follow that mechanism on each and every one you know no one's gonna actually be doing any construction so um failing that there's a mechanism within the contractors to um what is effectively called within the jct contracts the valuation rules and they can get quite convoluted and they uh, are very much um based upon what exactly it is that you're valuing, what kind of works it is that you're valuing. But in summary, they, they kind of work along the lines of if you if it's a variation to do something very similar to what is already in the um, contract sum analysis or the contract bills, you would apply the same rates and the same prices that were within the contract bills. You know, and that's that's a lot easier to do for the measured works and um, you know you you use that almost principle as a uh, as a starting point you're allowed to add on any lump sum adjustments as well there's a mechanism within the contract to provide for that so anything like overheads and profits uh you're allowed to add to um to your variation quotes and um any count that needs to be done for for any prelim kind of uh, cost you know scaffolding tower cranes you know whatever it is that you may need to do can all get it uh, included within the uh, the cost of a value of, of a variation it can be slightly more difficult when it comes to works that aren't capable of being measured and at that point the contract provides you should look at sort of day work rates for labor and but it, the principle really is you try as far as you're able to to mirror what has been agreed in the contract in terms of rates and, and, and sort of the scope of similar or the same types of work. And sort of as a bit of a sweep up provision, the contract says, if any of that is not possible, then you're paid a, uh, a, a fair rate and price. And that then becomes the, you know, what is a fair rate and price? Well, you know, that could be anything. <laughs> but yeah, but the, I, I guess where a lot of this falls down is a lot of people don't necessarily understand that that is the process right so if you've got a, if you'll be asking me to do another area of cladding where i've got that type of cladding already done on a different part of the job just use the same rate if that cladding is being inserted on the top floor and i need a crane instead of the ground floor now then maybe you adjust it slightly because it's a slightly different version of the same area and then if you don't have that and you have to work it out then it's day works or kind of like cost plus to some degree i see on so many or my experience on many cases was that a you wouldn't price per rule one and rule two rates or adjusted rates and therefore you just kind of create a price out of nowhere and then on both sides the client would then be saying i need proof of your costs i need you needed to provide invoices etc etc and that's often where you end up because you haven't followed the valuation rules Let's say though that you have and you're on option number three, what do you need to, what's your obligation to prove? Because often you'll hear people say, I don't agree with your overhead profit at that number. I don't, give me all your invoices and nonsense to be honest with you. And it's just counterproductive. So what do you need to provide? Well, it's it's not necessarily an obligation to provide these things. It's just, that is the evidence to prove that your position is correct. So 
it all sort of comes back to, you know, there's there's a way of valuing variations, and you would you would submit a, as the contractor an application uh, that would then get valued in the normal normal way. Any variations that are therefore agreed sort of fall out of that bracket. They're agreed, great. Your problem area where it starts to come to okay, how are you going to evidence your um, you know your your sums that you're claiming for your 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 valuations? All of that comes about where the employer or whoever it is that values them doesn't agree with it, and it's almost well unless you can prove that what you're claiming is accurate and correct, you know, how can you, you know, it's the principle of trying to prove any claim. How can you, how can you claim for uh, and be successful in claiming those sums without evidence? And, you know, that same principle goes for basic claims outside of construction as well. Let's say I'm, the developer or a main contractor, someone who is sending a subcontract tender out, you see loads of them. What in a tender completely turns you off and makes you think, oh, I'm really not interested in this or this doesn't feel right? Yeah, okay. So if it's on a doesn't feel right scale, there's a few things. I think if you have a, a really common thing that happens with a lot of our clients, we get these phone calls. I've just received an invitation to tender. I'd love to work with this client, but they've sent me 100 documents. It's overwhelming. So I think that one thing that we see and that I really don't think is the bit to the benefit of main contractors is a not a lot of thought going into what's being sent out or so risk averse. It's like, let's just send everything. So let's send them every single drawing, every single survey, everything, and not kind of making it really clear on what's actually inv- included in the package. The, so that never feels great because you could, there's the point is in construction there's a knowledge gap a lot of the time right there's a bit of a there's a bit of a gap so you have main contractors they've got people working for them who have quantity surveying degrees or you know civil engineering degrees and they're very um, educated and experienced and they're doing this stuff all day and a lot of our clients for our demographic anyway they've come off the tools they've built a successful business they don't necessarily understand every in and out of contract law or every in and out of and there should be a point where main contractors in the interest of building great relationship with their subcontractors and in the interest of getting really excellent tender returns back should be making it easy (laughs) you know not that they're taking on you know not that they're kind of going away and, and doing all of the work for them or anything like that but just that collaboration piece working with them to get to a good tender so there are a couple of things that don't sit right with me is that when you're getting just this overwhelm of documents they don't all need to be there and the other thing is if there's a lack of relationship interest so if we have a subcontractor speaking with us they're like I'm keen to do this tender but I haven't been able to get them answering my emails and I haven't been able to get them on the phone that's a big red flag for me because the relationship isn't there are they really interested in getting your tender return or are they just looking for to build up numbers and how are they going to be to work for if that's the approach that they're taking at tender stage it's, it's, it's so frustrating, isn't it? I mean, I see mm-hmm. it so often. And that's kind of what I was trying to touch on in my ebook. I'm plugging my ebook. Everyone go and have a look. But um, It's really good. <laughs> v- excellent read. See? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it's very, one, yeah, it's great. No, one, one of the things, and these, these are simple things, I actually think it both sides of the, whether you're a subcontractor or you're the buyer, let's call it, whether you're a main contractor or developer, you're the buyer. So if you're the buyer... It has a huge impact, in my opinion. If you pick up the phone and say, I've sent you a tender, I'm going to explain it to you for five minutes, and I'm going to explain why I want you to price it, and I look forward to receiving your price. Subcontractor thinks, oh, this is amazing. This guy 
or girl is someone who I can build a relationship with. I think I can pick up the phone and talk to them, et cetera, et cetera. And by the same token, I think a big slice that many subcontractors miss is they receive the tender and they just go into what I would have feel is like a shell. We think, well, have they, re- are they communicated? Are they, re- have they opened it? Have they got any questions? When are they going to return it? Are they going to return it? So communication back from the subcontractors to say, I've received this. If we've got any questions, I'm going to come back to you. And just that alone, whether you're on the buying side or the subcontract side, helps you both think, oh, there's a relationship here to be built. So for me, that's something that really echoes with how I feel about the process and how many tenders fail is communication is such a big part of it, but definitely as well, narrowing down the document so many times, see a document dump of 100 and say, sift, sift through that, go and deal with it guys and get surprised back whereas it, it, a phone call could say look i've sent you 100 but actually this folder is the folder that i want you to focus on that's where all the roofing elements are if you want to have a conversation once you've read it that would be really great i'm happy to do that those kind of things will actually build a successful tender process in my, my I completely view. agree paul and how long does that take to give that subcontract a couple of minutes and then if there's something they're not sure about or there's a concern they have this doesn't make sense on this drawing how about this something doesn't make something doesn't align here these quantities don't seem correct against the drawing if they're going to be happy enough to pick up the phone and give you a call and have a chat about that then that's great for main contractor side too so it's going to ease the whole tender process but as you say it's a two-way street and subcontractors need to they do go into a shell in my experience as well and there needs to be a bit of proactiveness picking up the phone um, this is when you can expect a tender return back is there a site visit i'd love to come and take a look um, you know can we discuss further on this data on, on this specific issue and just starting to build that relationship because tenders are one on trust ultimately and if you you can build that through relationship you can put yourself into that position of being really trusted uh, with a little bit of communication so there we go those were my five favorite moments from the 98 episodes before i hope you've enjoyed listening to them and guys I genuinely mean this. Thank you so much for being on the journey with us today. For anyone who has reached out to me and for everyone who listens, I genuinely appreciate it. We would not have made it to 99 episodes if it wasn't for you. I thank you eternally and I'm really looking forward to hearing from you all moving forward and to doing the next 100 episodes. And here is to that. Have a great week ahead. I will speak to you next week as always.